Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is the wonderful Chad Hopman, author of Billy's Ghost and Magic and Grace. Chad, welcome. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you very much. I've, uh, I've enjoyed your, uh, your newsletter for years and it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you for the first time. Yes, we, we have had an interview before, but uh, not uh, verbally, so it is quite nice to, to be able to connect this way. Exactly. Now, before we start, um, some of the readers may not yet have read your novel, Magic and Grace, so um, can you just read us a little bit from it, just so that um, you can give people a flavor? Um, okay, sure. Um, this is um, the beginning of Chapter 4. It's... Uh, after uh, Gib has uh, Gib Chapman, the protagonist, has had a novel published, uh, it's after, uh, unfortunately, he has uh, slept with his agent. Um, it's after his wife, Laura, has punched him in the mouth and divorced him. And uh, it's after Gib has been living on the beach and uh, embarking on a serious bender for about a year. So uh, this is uh, Gib trying to get his life back on track. The transaction took several hours, but by noon, Gib had bought a house, the house directly across the street from Laura's house and his old house. By late afternoon, he had moved in, packing most of his possessions in the back of his Jeep. Asia jumped for joy at her daddy's big surprise, but Laura's reaction was more subdued. Are you out of your fucking mind, she said. The idea will grow on you, said Gib. You'll see. He knew he had to take this slowly. No one asked Frank, who was out by the pool, smoking and coughing and soiling his pants, what he might think. Despite his ex-wife's muted enthusiasm, Gib loved being back in the old neighborhood, with the mahogany canopies that shaded the streets, the overgrown lawns studded with hoary sable palms, and the neighbors who felt so at home here, they often fell asleep in lawn chairs right next to the road. Given Laura Street, 2nd Avenue, had always been one of the quietest in Lake Park, where kids could play ball without worrying about traffic. But best of all, from the curtainless windows of his new home, Gib could watch Asia chase lizards on her front porch or twist herself in her swing until she let go and spun like a dervish. And from his kitchen window at night, if he stood on tiptoe and craned his neck just right, he could see into his daughter's room the walls still decorated with the bird paintings he'd hung while she watched from her crib. Often, too, he could see Asia herself propped in bed, a pile of pillows at her back, reading her big colorful books, and, he hoped, thinking about him. But sometimes these glimpses of his daughter, coming from this distant and silent perspective, were more like the toe of a boot connecting just below his breast bone, and he had trouble catching his breath. She had grown so beautiful this past year without his even noticing. Back in the old neighborhood, Gib could again awaken to the roar of lions, another rediscovered joy. When he'd lived with Laura, windows open during the winter and spring, he had never needed an alarm clock. That was because at 5 a.m. sharp, the three African lions at Caribbean Gardens, father, mother, and cub, would start their ritual huffing in anticipation of a raw lamb shank or beef haunch breakfast. Just a half mile from the house, the animals at the historic attraction could be heard as if they were camped in the yard. In fact, on the stillest mornings, the lions could be heard two or three miles away. 
After the big cats ate, the monkeys on their islands yodeled and cackled, hurling their screams and bouncing them off the water in a manner that sounded part avian, part demon, a snooze alarm in case the lions had not roused Gibbs sufficiently. And thus the zoo and Gibbs would rise for another day. He didn't realize how much he had missed this wake-up call of the wilds. Something he had not missed, however, were his daily encounters with, Dave, with neighbor Jake Mendenhall. Jake was a young guy, a family man, not long out of the Army. He still wore his hair in a buzz cut, worked incessantly on his house and yard, kept his car spotless, and never blasted his stereo. Calling everyone sir or ma'am and always wearing a smile, Jake was a perfect gentleman. Gibb would have been the first to admit that he couldn't ask for a better neighbor. But everyone had a dark side, and Jake Mendenhall drove Gibb to distraction. The XGI was an endless source of neighborly cliches. He was remorse, remorseless, relentless, and when Gibb and Laura had lived together, Jake had lived right next door. No matter how Gibb tried to time his comings and goings, he invariably encountered Jake Mendenhall in front of his house. Early bed catches the worm, eh, sir? Jake would say as he left for work each morning. Upon his return, he would announce, another day, another dollar. Isn't that right, sir? Gibb would smile and nod and wave. Weekends saw a new but equally painful collection. Working hard or hardly working would greet Gibbs every chore, from trimming trees to washing his jeep. Ah, just another day in paradise, eh, sir? And now that Gibb lived across the street, he would be dealing with these wearying epigrams, these tired, broken-down, fingernail-on-the-blackboard, well-intentioned platitudes shouted through kindly Jake Mendenhall's cupped hands. It might be the first real test of his sobriety, Gibb thought. I like that tired, the, the tired, broken-down uh, fingernails on the blackboard platitudes. Oh, thanks. And I think after I read that, I, I thought to myself, I, I can never hear another platitude without thinking about that line. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, unfortunately, there are some people who, uh, yeah, uh, live by that. And what can you do, you know? They're trying to be friendly. You can't be mean. Yes, and I suppose, you know, that if you didn't hear them so often, there, there might be something in them. <laughs> I know, I know. And so tell me about um, Gibb. You you set him up quite well. You, you um chose a good a good passage to read because it really um it kind of covered a lot of what goes on in the book at least in terms of the the actual plot progression um but he's a he's an interesting character isn't he he's uh, we really get the feeling particularly in that in that reading you've done um that he's you know he's hungry for for you know going back to something that was good um i i, I think he, he he realizes what he's lost um He's someone, it's sort of a case of um, uh, be careful what you wish for um, because he had worked so long to become a published writer and then when it happened he became so full of himself that uh, uh, he became insufferable to live with and uh, um, basically lost his life. And now he's trying to, uh, as he says, rewrite the book and get it all back. And he thinks that uh, if he can actually rewrite a book, why can't he rewrite his own life? And the rest of the novel sort of puts that to the test. Yes, he's he's quirky, isn't he? But uh, at times you think he's he's kind of a, a loser as well. I mean, so much goes his way. 
Um, what, what I tried to do, I mean, I tried to make him likable, uh, uh, smart and charming, but uh, still give him enough goofy defects that, uh, um, you know, most readers, me included, could relate to him. Um, plus, I mean, he's kind of, throughout the novel, he's kind of accident-prone. Um, and uh, I've discovered that, uh, and I'm sure other, other writers have too, that uh, accidents are great launching points in fiction for... Uh, new scenes, new characters, new situations. Yes, and I guess um, he does grow as well, through, sometimes through those accidents, but he really does change as the novel progresses. Uh, yeah, yeah, he he tries to get back to the person he wanted to be and, and uh, uh, instead of the person that, uh, uh, you know, he was diverted into being. And tell me a little bit about his book, What Would Keats Do?, Oh, um, well, I mean, that all started, um, I had a, a, a great professor in, in grad school uh, named Hardin Goodman, who actually made an appearance in uh, Billy's Ghost as Goodman Hardin. Uh, and he was a, a really, he was a dapper, old school, southern gentleman, but uh, he was just, he was in love with the romantic poets. Uh, in fact, he used to tell people that um, he was... Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge reincarnated, and that used to chase out half the, the undergraduates in the class. But um, uh, anyhow, he, he instilled uh, uh, in most of his students, me included, uh, a real love for the Romantics and appreciation for the Romantics and an understanding of what they were trying to accomplish in their poetry. And my favorite was Keats with his, his sort of stop-action poetry. It was, it was really zen-like. And I wanted to have uh, Gib Chapman, the, the protagonist in this novel, write a book about uh, a ghost of a famous popular person like I did in, in my first novel. And I thought, well, Keith would be an interesting person to, to resurrect. Um, and, I mean, it's just it's fun bringing, as a writer, it's fun bringing interesting people back from the dead. I mean, and who else but a writer can really do that? Yes, and I suppose that the whole notion of a ghost of Keats um, harkens back to that teacher. It's a, it's a lovely concept. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, plus, I mean, uh, you can always take a lot of uh, uh, liberties with their personalities, of course, like I did with both, with both Keats and, and Billie Holiday. And who's going to know the difference? Yeah, that's right. Um, so that, that's one reason for using ghosts, I suppose, in a novel. Um, but both of your novels, Billy's Ghost and Magic and Grace, are, are sort of peopled with ghosts and magic. So talk to me a little bit about that magic, because it's it's literal magic and it's also metaphorical magic, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I guess I've just I've always been fascinated by um, the unexplainable, not uh, not fantasy so much, not Harry Potter kind of stuff. Um, but just those those um, unusual, unexplainable things that that happen to to all of us in our day to day lives, um, you know, where uh, I guess you could say the universe seems to crack open and 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 show you its secrets. I mean, Steinbeck used that a lot. Um, you know, just the the moments where everything seems to fall into place and and you realize it, mm-hmm. and it startles you and and makes you more aware. And uh, with ghosts, I mean, ghosts are just flat-out cool. I mean, as a writer, I mean, I don't think you can miss if you throw a ghost, in, a ghost into your story. Well, especially I mean, look at Keats or Billie Holiday. 
right. Yeah, I mean, the ghosts of famous people. I don't know why. I mean, it just that that just uh, it fascinates me, and it it seems so cool. I mean, can you imagine bumping into one in your hallway? And and that's what uh, that's what my characters do, and I, I kind of like that. And they recognize immediately who who the ghost is. Yes, and they and they don't get too caught up in it either. I mean, I, I quite like that they still maintain the cynical edge. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, this, yeah, this, this is a ghost, and it's here right now. And you know, uh, you're either going to pay rent or you're going to you're going to do the dishes. That's right. So, um, I, I felt that there was a, a kind of, um, I guess, a natural progression, almost autobiographical. And and I know you're resistant to this, and and I would be too. But um, from Billy's Ghost to Magic and Grace, do do you find that there's a strong link between life life and art for you? Uh. Yeah, well, yeah, probably, yeah, like like you and 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 like like any other writer. Um, yeah, I mean that's a that's a really good question. Um, I I think it's an issue that every fiction writer has to deal with, and uh, I'm sure most fiction writers do draw on personal experience, or you know at least the the experiences that they've uh, witnessed that others have had. I, I what do you know better, right? Um, I think at the very least you can use personal experience as a, a, a springboard, a jumping off point for scenes or characters. You know, if something happens to you, uh, uh, I think a, a writer will naturally think, well, now what if this happened next or this happened next? Um, so, yeah, definitely. But uh, I, think I, I think I sort of subscribe to the, the Dickens, Twain, John Irving philosophy about about fiction that uh, uh, rather than, than reflecting life exactly as it is, um, I think maybe fiction should take real life and make it better, funnier, you know, maybe more heroic, more uh, soulful, uh, nobler. Or more universal, perhaps. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that you, you have to take those individual experiences but turn them into something that's just a, you know, a little bit more able for other people to relate to, a little bit more generalizable and you know, just something more powerful. Yeah, and, and perhaps uh, make, it more, uh, make it work out uh, in a way that, uh, I don't know if clear cut is, is the expression, but uh, you know, just in a way that, that makes the fiction satisfying whereas life often doesn't end satisfyingly. Yes, that's true. You always have to have a happy ending in some, some form or another. Yeah, yeah, or a satisfying ending. Yeah. So speaking of um, verisimilitude, this is your second novel set in Naples, Florida. Um, it's so beautifully depicted in both books. You really get a sense of, you know, the the sunshine and the environment around it. Um, why do you keep going back to Naples? Oh, um, well, I mean, well, thanks for saying that. I, I, that's something I had hoped to, uh, to do. Um, uh, I mean, there, there, part of the reason I think is that there are so many novels set in Florida, um, but they're all of a type, you know, they're, they're all of the, the crime murder mystery sort of, uh, Carl Hyacinth wannabe, uh, novels. So there's that, um, I wanted to write a, a Florida-based book that wasn't of that genre, or Florida-based books that weren't of that genre. And um, Florida, like like probably Australia, um, 
I mean, it just gives you a lot to work with. You know, you've got the, the exotic flora and fauna and and the extremes of weather and, and the storms, which are, are rolling in here as we speak. I mean, there are big, ugly, dark clouds coming in over the, the banyan trees. Um, and there's the, the, the transient, even bizarre mix of people. Uh, I mean, it just you, you just have so much to work with. And to try to uh, set up a character in a normal life in this sort of setting uh, is a challenge and, and an interesting one. And uh, I think it makes a novel more interesting. I, I can't imagine trying to set a novel in the, um, I mean, the dull, boring Midwest where I grew up. I would think you'd you'd have to comment uh, in your in your fiction on just how dull and boring it was. Yes. Now it, it's been a, a quite a bumpy road to publication of, of Magic and Grace. You actually wrote it quite a long time ago. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the trials you went through. Oh wow! Yeah, God, <laughs> if I can even recall them all. Um, um, well, I think <clears throat> I think unless you hit on a you know a successful series idea. Or, or something like that, uh, uh, getting any novel published, you know, first, second, third, uh, can be just as difficult uh, as the initial one. Um, but, yeah, with, with Magic and Grace, it was it was even more difficult. Um, Penguin, who published uh, my first novel, was going to publish it, and then my editor was laid off, and the new editor who took it over already had her plate full of other projects, and so she let it go. Uh, then it was picked up by a small press. Um, they published it and went out of business a week later. So it never really got any, uh, it never really got any distribution. And then uh, an editor at Random House wanted it, and then he was laid off. I mean, this was that 2008 purge of, of editors at every major publishing house. Um, and then after that, I found that uh, most other uh, American publishers didn't want to touch it because it had been, as they said, previously published, even if only for a week, and it was never distributed. So I started looking overseas, um, well, London mainly, and uh, and found Finger Press, an, an independent publishing house there, and and uh, and they snatched it up, and I've been. Uh, I mean, they've they've been great. I've I've been terribly satisfied with them. It's extraordinary, really, to, to you know, I've had two editors resign. It just seems such a, a, a strange twist of fate. Uh, uh fired actually. Fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the 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 publishing houses just, uh, you know, the past five years have gone through such a huge purge and a slimming down and and everything else. But uh, yeah, I I can only imagine that there have been dozens if not hundreds of other writers in the same position. Yes, and I, I imagine that once, you know, you, you'd had it accepted by Penguin, you probably thought, well, that's it. I'll just write the book. It'll be published. I'll write my next one. It'll be published, and, you know, everything's straightforward from here on in. Exactly. It was a huge disappointment. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, and, and, and that was one of the big shocks about uh, uh, going from a small publisher to a major publisher uh, when you get picked up by a major publisher, you think, oh, well, you know, the, the world's my oyster now. Uh, and it's it's not necessarily, you know, because they publicize maybe 10% of the books they publish, and the rest of them just language in, in you know, mid-list purgatory. 
and you know barely making any money for for the publisher or the author. So it's uh, uh, you know if if you're writing literary stuff or uh, or you know midlist stuff, which you know is still very good stuff, stuff that people want to read. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a ticket, uh, uh, you know, out of your day job. Mm. I think there are a lot of preconceptions out there um, from from authors as well, even people who have been around for a while. There certainly was with me, yeah. Oh, yeah, I thought when Penguin picked up Billy's Ghost, that was it. Yeah, I was an author for the rest of my life. Didn't have to do anything else to make a living. <laughs> yes. That's cool I was. Well, that's the, yeah, I suppose it's, it's always a steep learning curve. <laughs> right. It's the first lesson. But, hey, you know, it, it gives you more to write about, right? Yes, right. That's right. Absolutely. It's all material. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's all new material. Yeah. So so Magic and Grace is published in the UK. Have there been any issues? Have you had any issues dealing with a, a UK publisher? Or do you find that, you know, really we live in a global world now? Um, I think you're right. Yeah, I think it is pretty much, um, uh, at least in the, the English-speaking world, you know, a, a global global publishing world. Um, although there were a few uh, a few editing issues. Um, I mean, the obvious ones, the obvious spelling issues between American English and UK English. Um, you know, like honor with without the U and uh, you know realize with an S. And things like that. But one of the the things that surprised me was that uh, apparently, and this was news to me, uh, UK English doesn't punctuate um, the abbreviations for Mister, Mrs., and Doctor. So I was I was going through the the proofs, putting in all these periods, thinking, God, this is some sloppy proofreading on their part. And uh, then I thought, No, they couldn't have missed all of these periods. So you know, I did some I did some research, and I mean, this probably seems obvious to you, uh, living in Australia, but uh, it wasn't to me. I didn't know that uh, the British left periods off of those words. And, and also commas, whether they go inside quotations or outside quotations. The, yeah, no, there's a there's a range of things that are different. Oh, exactly. I was I was putting every comma back inside the uh, the quotation marks. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I didn't even yeah, I didn't even remember that. <laughs> oh, well. Australia's yeah, relative to minor issues, I guess. Yes, that's right. So uh so the Magic and Grace then is all in, in um UK English, is it? Uh I believe so, yeah. I imagine there are some tricky things though, because there are some words that are quite um, distinctively American in it. Um uh I I I'm sure there were, yeah. I I I can't think of any offhand. Um, Even sneakers, for example. Oh, really? Oh, okay. No, I didn't. I didn't trainers know. in the UK. It, it, what's it called? Trainers. Trainers? Yeah. Oh, okay. Sweaters hmm. and jumpers, they did, for example. So, they changed that. So I think they cut me some slack on that. Yes. But, I, uh, I I think it, it is an American book, so I suppose you're allowed to use your American English. <laughs> I think uh, the swear words are pretty pretty cross-cultural, aren't they? Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I think Americans do it less than the English. <laughs> oh, is that right? That's well, I mean, Americans, wouldn't, Americans don't consider bloody really a swear word. Yeah, that's right. There are a few can other interesting say, things, too. Can you say bloody on English television? I don't know. You're all right saying it on my radio show. 
Well, I mean, I already said the F word, so. Yeah, that's true. I mean, We're fine and, now. And, uh, well, yeah, and, and I, I neglected to ask you about that beforehand. Oh, no, it's okay. It's my sensor here. But interestingly, on the website, um, sometimes words get automatically censored, and I find very interesting um, asterisks on top of things that are completely innocuous. <laughs> oh, yeah. So um, you've worked with a variety of small houses. You, went, you actually went with Billy's Ghost from a small to a large house, and obviously Penguin's as big as it gets. So um, you've talked a little bit about some of the differences. Tell me about some of the others, some, maybe some of the more positive ones. Uh, of working with a small press? Yeah. Or even, um, you know, the, the differences between a small and large. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, the, the, with the smaller press, um, distribution can be a problem. I mean, it's harder to get your book in bookstores, harder to get reviews, and and so on. And there's there's always the um, – you always get the question if you've published with uh, – you know, and there are so many legitimate – wonderful small presses that even people in the book business haven't heard of, but you inevitably, inevitably, if you've gone with a small press, get the question, uh, are, uh, is this self-published? Mm. So there's, there's always that to deal with with a small press. Um, and, well, I mean, like I mentioned before, landing a big publisher isn't, isn't necessarily, uh, you know, the, the gates to heaven or a, a key to the gate to heaven. Um, with a small publisher, you, you often, I mean, you make friends with, with the publisher. You know, editors don't change as quickly as they do with the major houses. Uh, you have a lot more say. In fact, with Magic and Grace, uh, a photo that my wife took of our daughter at the beach is the cover photo. And, uh, I mean, it's a great photo. And it would have been a great photo had anyone taken it. But um, I, I can't imagine having been able to do that with, Penguin or or Random House, mm. so you have a lot more input. Pardon me. It's a gorgeous photo. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, and it, and it just it fits the the book so well. Mm. Um, but I, it, you get a lot more input uh, with a small publisher, and I mean I wouldn't discourage anyone from going with a small press. You're not going to get rich doing it, but you'll get your book published, and you never know what'll happen. Yes. Uh, Do you think what we're doing? mentioned, uh, Billy's Ghost was published by a small press, and uh, a representative from Penguin found it in a bookstore in Kentucky mm. and took it back to New York, and they bought it. So, I mean, anything can happen. As long as you get your book published and out there, anything can happen. Yes. You talked about, the, you know, being, I guess, being confused sometimes, small publishers being confused with self-publishing. Do you think we're moving to a time as self-publishing becomes very, very prevalent, um, and you know, often fairly low quality because it's so easy and cheap to get something right. out. Um, that, that the small traditional publishers who actually put a fair bit of work into quality will start to become more prestigious. That they'll start to become more recognizable. Well, yeah, probably. And you know, how many uh, really recognizable publishers now started as small independent presses? Mm -hmm. You know, Soho and. Uh, I mean, you could name a bunch. Yep. The ones on the West Coast. Pardon me? Canning Gate. Right, exactly. Mm. So we're, we're running very close to the end of the program, I'm afraid, but um, I'd love to hear if there's a, another novel in the works. Uh, well, uh, it's just, it's kind of in the idea stage right now. Um, 
it's uh, it's sort of a, a, an international mystery conspiracy thing that uh, it could be a lot of fun to write. It's uh, it involves the uh, the fictional offspring of Madame Chiang Kai Shek and an underground organization that uh, that they're running that kidnaps Chinese American girls and takes them back to China where they're being trained to uh, to eventually overthrow the communist government to to sort of reestablish a uh, uh, a rich person's uh, plutocracy that, that the real Madame Chiang Kai-shek had always envisioned. Um, what generated that idea, I mean, that uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek and the American politician, um, Wendell Wilkie, had a, a torrid affair, and yeah. that uh, she had planned to bankroll his presidential run, and then when he became president, they were going to split the world in half. He would rule the West, and she would rule the East. But he died, and it never came to fruition. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was sort of what generated the whole idea for this. I mean, it's a, it's a really complex plot, so the challenge is going to be to, to humanize the whole thing. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I, I suppose there's, there's an opportunity for you to um, bring Madame in as a ghost as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be good. I hadn't thought about that, but, yeah, that would be good. That would be good. A real change of uh, focus, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, kind of, and it's uh, yeah. It, it seems like uh, right now it seems like uh, a huge uh, bite uh, of research to to take a chunk out of, but yeah, maybe. Oh, we'll look forward to that. What about you? What are you working on? Oh, I can't talk about it now. Ah, okay. But something something's definitely out there. Oh, good. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Otherwise, I'd go on about my own stuff. <laughs> um, Chad, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic talking to you. It's been it's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, our next guest is Aaron Lazar, who will be returning to the show next month to talk about his new book, Fire Song. So please join us then. Thanks again. Bye for now. Thank you, Maggie. Bye.